Matthew. We're going to look at the first 13 verses uh, this evening. Uh, just to kind of give you a recap of what's taking place, uh, the life and the ministry of Jesus is in full swing. Uh, last week on Thursday night, we saw uh, him before the uh, throw the uh, he cast out the demons from the demon possessed men, uh, and he, they went into the pigs. We saw that take place. Showed his power over the demonic realm. Prior to that, we saw him on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples and the and the storm raging, and he calmed the wind and the wave. Showed his power over nature. Prior to that, we saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law. He healed everybody that came to him. We saw the centurion's servant healed. We saw him cleanse a leper. We're seeing a lot of powerful works being done through the life of Christ. And all of this is being done to kind of show that he is the Messiah. He's fulfilling the role of the Messiah. Matthew's pointing these things out to us. And we're going to see that continue in our study. But what we need to take notice of going from this point forward, we're going to begin to see the religious leaders come and check him out a bit. You see, words getting around. Demons are being cast out. Miracles are being done. People are, that were leprous are now made clean. People that are, were sick are now made well. He's calming the winds and the waves. All this is getting back to the people in Jerusalem, and they're going, hey, what's going on up there in the Galilee? We've got to go check this out. So we're going to begin to see the scribes, the Pharisees, and even the Sadducees going forward coming to check out the life of Christ. Who is this guy? What's going on? Is this for real? And they're coming with the very uh, fine-tooth comb, if you will. They're looking for mistakes. They're looking for errors. They're looking for violations. You know, they're not looking to hail him as the Messiah. They're looking to, to find a reason why he's not the Messiah. And we're going to begin to see some of that unfold tonight. So in Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to read the first eight verses, then we'll come back and talk about it. It says, so he got into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And as he arose and departed to his house, now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and they glorified God who had, who had given such power to men. Again, another healing taking place here. It says there in verse 1, he got into a boat and he crossed over and he came to his own city. He had been in the area of Gadara, where the, he healed the demon-possessed men. He, he'd gone and over there. That's where the storm took place. Now he came back across the Sea of Galilee. And his own city doesn't refer to where he was born or Nazareth, where he lived. It refers to where he was staying in the Galilee. And where, he, where was he staying? Where was kind of his home base? It was Capernaum. It's where Peter lived. It's where his, his home base was sort of made. So he comes back to the city of Capernaum. And the other Gospels, uh, Matt, or Mark and Luke, tell us that he was teaching there. He was teaching in a house there. And he came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, I love the fact that some of the Gospels give us more information than others. And I think that gives credit to the Gospels. If they were all exactly alike, we would say, hey, you guys copied. You cheated. 
You know, how did you know exactly? But because different people focused on different areas, I think that gives a lot of credit to it. So when we come to a situation or a story like this, it always benefits us to say, hey, what does the other gospel say? Can they shed some more insight? Can they give us some more light on what's being said? And, and you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to kind of tell you what they say. But both Mark and Luke record this story for us. They record this taking place, but they give us a little more insight. They tell us that as Jesus, what he was doing, he was sharing the word of God. He was teaching the word of God, and he was doing it in a house. And we're told in the other Gospels that it was so crowded, you couldn't get through the doorway or through the window. So if you can ma imagine a house, a relatively small house, with so many people, maybe 30 or 40 people, just crammed in shoulder to shoulder so that you couldn't even move around in there, and Jesus was sharing the word of God, it tells us. Now, you guys are nice and spread out tonight. You, you, normally you're all on like one side or the other, but tonight, for some reason, everyone's nice and spread out in here. And can you imagine if you were sitting, like literally, where there was no room for you to move? Some of you would go, I'm claustrophobic. I couldn't, I couldn't even do that. That wouldn't work for me. But that's the, that's the picture that we're given here. He's in this house. He's teaching. The people are closed in. And then Matthew says, there in verse 2, he says, they behold, Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic, or a man who was paralyzed, lying on a bed. Now Matthew just kind of breezes over a really important picture of what's taking place here. You see, what's taking place in this house, when they got to the house with the man that was paralyzed, they couldn't get into the house. It was blocked off. There was too many people. They couldn't get a paralyzed man through the crowd. There was, they couldn't themselves get through the crowd. So they had an idea. And, Matthew, and Mark and Luke both tell us this. You know what they did? They went up on the roof. And when they went up on the roof, they began taking the roof apart, and they lowered the man, the paralyzed man, down in front of Jesus or on top of Jesus or in the crowd there on a sheet. Now, that's pretty interesting. It says, they, then behold, they brought to him a paralytic li lying on a bed. Now, I want you to imagine with me, you're in this house, and Jesus is teaching the word of God like you've never heard it taught before. And all of a sudden, you begin to feel a little dust falling on your head. All of a sudden, there's some scraping going around. Now, you're thinking roof like our roof, okay? They didn't have, you know, a pitched roof and shingles and tar paper and all that kind of stuff. Their roofs were made, a lot of them were made of stone, and their roofs were living quarters above their, above their house. When we were in Israel, we went to, in the Galilee, we went to a place called Chorazim, and a lot of their homes were built with arches, and they would support these big stones. They were probably about a foot wide, maybe six feet long, and they would sit on top, and they would sit right next to each other. So you'd have like a long, narrow stone, then they'd pack it with like this mud that would dry as cement to keep the water out if it rained, which it didn't do too often except for the rainy season. But they would pack it that way to keep it out. So when, you say, when I say they took apart the roof, or when the scripture tells us they disassembled the roof, it wasn't like they got a saw out and, and drilled a hole. They moved these stones. They had to dig out the dirt, or, the, or, the, or what we, we may even call it mortar. They had to actually pick up and physically move these stones out of the way. Now, can you imagine Jesus there teaching? We think the kids can be distracting on Sunday. Can you imagine what it would be like if all of a sudden someone started drilling a hole in the roof? And all of a sudden we're all looking up, and I'm still teaching, you know, probably, I don't even think he, I don't even think he looked up. I think he kept right on going. That's just my opinion. All of a sudden, here comes a guy, and, and here comes a sheet, and there's a bed being lowered down, there's, and there's four people up there. They've got four corners, and here it comes, right down, right in the middle of it, it lands, right there on the, in the front row. You guys would all be thinking, what's going on? What, what, what's, what's taking place? What, what is this all about? What are you doing to the building? Who's going to put this back together? What, what's taking place? Why is this happening? But look what Jesus does. 
It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. It says, when Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? The, the, the scripture indicates the four friends who were lowering him down. Some Bible scholars believe that it wasn't even the faith of the man that was healed. It was the faith of his friends to bring him to Jesus. Do you have friends like that? I hope so. I hope you still have some friends that would do that for you. So these four friends brought this man to Jesus in his paralyzed condition. They lower him. Jesus sees their faith, and he says to the man who's paralyzed. He looks at him. You just imagine. He looks at him, and he says, son, and that was a common way of greeting someone in that day, a friend. Son, it wasn't young man. It could be any man. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, in my mind, here's what I see happening. Here comes the guy down. He's laying on the front there. The people have to move back. Now they're even more crowded. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, son, your sins are, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And I imagine four people, no, 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 no. That's not what we want. No, no, we, we want you to heal him. We don't, want his, we don't want his sins forgiven. We want him to walk. No, no, no. You don't understand what Jesus is doing. You see, everybody in that room, including the man who was lame, believed that he was lame because of sin. You see, it was a common belief in that day that if you, were, had a, if you had a, a problem, a, 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 if you were paralyzed, if you had leprosy, or if you had blind, if you were blindness, it was a punishment for your sin or your parents' sin or even your grandparents' sin. In other words, who sinned that this man might be sick? And Jesus would set them straight. But it was common belief that because he was sick, because he was paralyzed, he had to have done something wrong. He was suffering the judgment of God because of his sin or because of somebody else in his family's sin. And so when Jesus says to him, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. That's an amazing thing to say. But it's also an easy thing to say. Because I could look at you and say, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. The difference between him and I is he had the authority to forgive them. I don't. I can point you to him for forgiveness, but I can't forgive your sins. That's something that only he can do. Here's something interesting. Faith in Jesus these friends, they had faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus will produce action in your life. It'll produce a desire to be closer to Jesus. It'll produce something in you that, that the outward action is going to line up with the inward faith. It, it has to work that way. Whenever you believe in something, you're going to react to something. These friends, what did they believe? They believed that Jesus had the power to heal this lame man. As a result, they labored for it. When they got there, if you were carrying your friend and you got to the place and the place was full and they said, I'm sorry, there's no room for you, what would you do? Most of us would just turn around and go, well, we tried. I guess it wasn't God's will. You know, we prayed about it and, you know, the door wasn't open. It wasn't God's will. Not them. What'd they do? They went up on the roof, started disassembling the roof. We know, we believe if we can get this man in front of Jesus, Jesus will heal him. They had faith. Their faith produced action. They had to carry this guy there. They didn't have wheelchairs back then. Who knows how far they carried him. They carried him. They disassembled the roof. They had to lower him down. I wonder how difficult it would be to lower somebody down with a sheet tied off on four corners. I'd like to try that someday. Who would volunteer to lay in the sheet? Not me. A couple would. Kevin's going to lay in the sheet. No. <laughs> Could you imagine what that would be like? A little bit. Keep going. A little more. A little more. And then, you know, you got one guy who goes, well, I went too far. And there he goes. Well, I mean, if you're going to fall out, Jesus is the place to do it. He can heal you, right? 
you're going to fall out, that's the way to do it. Faith in Jesus will produce actions that cause you to want to be closer to Jesus. So they bring him there. Their faith brings him. He says, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Listen, faith in Jesus will also produce the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. He's receiving the greater blessing there in the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus is not only working in him. He's also working in the crowd that seems to be watching on. Some, there in verse 3, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. This man blasphemes. Why, why would they say something like that? Why would they, why would they be in the, in the heart to accuse Jesus of blasphemy? Because they understand something. They understand that only God has the power to forgive sins. They understand that by him saying this, son, your sins are forgiven, he's es essentially making himself God. So his deity, he's, he's, he's there basically proclaiming his deity, playing, proclaiming himself as God. Who else could do something like that? Who else could you know, calm the wind and the, and the waves? Who else could cast out demons? Who else could do all of these things? And now as these, notice it was scribes, the scribes were there. That means they were like the lawyers. They were like the, the keepers of the law. They were the ones that interpreted the law. They passed down the oral traditions of the law. They told you how to live your life according to the law. So they were kind of like religious leaders. They look and they say, wait a minute, how is this guy able to forgive sins? Nobody's able to forgive sins except for God. It actually says that in one of the other gospels. He's not able to forgive sins. He's God. And then look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts... This isn't a public conversation. This is a private thought in their minds. They're thinking he's committing blasphemy. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? First of all, it's amazing that Jesus knew their thoughts. Do you know the Lord knows your thoughts? He knows what you're thinking now. knows what you were thinking earlier. knows what you're thinking later. And you think, ooh, that's kind of scary. He loves you anyways. He loves you in spite of what you were thinking earlier. He loves you in spite of those things. Matter of fact, he wanted to pay the consequences if those thoughts were sinful. He went to the cross for that. He knows their thoughts. And then he asks them a question. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was there accusing a guy of blasphemy in my mind, then he called me out on it all of a sudden, that'd be enough to prove his deity to me. I'd be good. He knew what I was thinking, and he called me out and said, hey, why are you thinking evil in your heart? Oh, I'm sorry, you're right. You know, you're good. We're good on this. You know, okay. But he asks them, why are you thinking evil? Why do you think evil in your hearts? That's a good question for us. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Why is it that we spend so much time thinking evil? Why do we think evil about other people? You see, they're looking at Jesus from the wrong perspective. They should be looking at him saying, is he the Messiah? Instead, they're looking at him saying he's blaspheming. There's no way he's the Messiah. Yet when somebody does something that you misunderstand, when somebody does something that you maybe misinterpret, why do you think evil in your hearts about them? Why is oftentimes our first response to be an evil thought or to condemn them or to critique them too heavily? Why don't we ever give people the benefit of the doubt? Oh, we want the benefit of the doubt, don't we? Oh, we want all the grace we can get. I don't want you thinking evil of me, but it's okay for me to think evil of you. You see, Jesus calls them out. He says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Then he asks them a question, very clearly in verse 5. Actually, two questions there. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, 
or to say, arise and walk. What's easier? What is easier for you to speak? It's easier for me to say that your sins are forgiven, right? And they would say, yes, it is. Why? Because anybody can say that. You can say anything you want, but it doesn't mean you have the power and authority to do that. And that's what he's saying. The only way I could tell somebody to rise up and walk is if I had the authority to do something. And if I had the authority to tell somebody to rise up and walk, wouldn't I also have the authority to tell someone their sins are forgiven? Because wouldn't that make me God? That's essentially the point that he's proven there. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven to you or to arise and walk. And then verse 6 says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power, and that word means authority also, has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He says, I'm going to do something so that you'll know something about me. I want you to know, number one, what does he call himself? The Son of Man. So you'll know the Son of Man has the authority, has the power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. He says, arise, pick up your bed that you were rolled down here, and walk out of here. Go on home. And verse 7 says, he arose and departed to his house. Isn't that amazing? You don't think I can forgive sins? Which is harder? To tell someone who's paralyzed to arise and walk or to say your sins are forgiven? He says, well, just to show you that I'm the son of man, just to show you that I have authority over sin, just to show you that my first statement was true, I'm going to tell the man to get up and walk. He'd have your attention by now if you were in that room, wouldn't you? You'd be paying attention going, all right, let's see what he's got. This, let's come on, this is where the rubber meets the road. You're waiting for the big show, and all he does is he looked down and says, arise, take up your bed and go home. I think it's interesting he said, go home. Go home. Don't go to the temple. Don't go down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem. Just, just go home. Go, go show your family what I've done in your life. Go tell your family what I've done in your life. And what happened? The man did it. He took up his bed, and he went home. Faith in Jesus will produce actions in your life that cause you to want to be close to Jesus. Haven't you found that out? That's why you're here tonight, isn't it? Because you want to hear the word of God. You want to learn more about the Lord. Faith in Jesus will cause, will produce in your life forgiveness of sins. Isn't that why we praise him? We sang songs about the forgiveness of sins tonight. Faith in Jesus will also produce healing from the past. This man's had a healing in his life. His was a physical healing, but faith in Jesus produces a spiritual healing. And do you know that when you believe on Jesus Christ, there's a healing that takes place? You might have a lot of consequences from sin in your life. And they might not all go away, but the Lord says, I'm going to heal you from them. I'm going to heal you in eternity from them. I'm going to change your life. I'm going to, they're not going to affect you the same way. You no longer have to feel guilty about your sin. I'm going to take that away from you. And what did that produce in the people there in verse 8? Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled. They marveled. In other words, or they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such power to men. It says they marveled. They were afraid. And it produced what? Worship in their hearts. It produced glory in their hearts. They were afraid because of the, what they had just seen. Who is this that's standing before them? Who's the one that has the power to forgive sins? Who's the one that has the power to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk? And he does it and he responds and he gets up and he walks. It produces a fear, but it's a godly fear in their hearts that ultimately produces worship. It produces worship in their hearts. They glorified God, it said. Who has this kind of power? 
Well, the next section there in verse 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says, as Jesus passed on from there, so he's passing on for Capernaum, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. So Jesus is heading out of Capernaum. He walks by the tax office there. And there's a guy sitting inside. His name's Matthew, also known as Levi. The word Matthew means gift of Jehovah, by the way. And he says to him, follow me. Now this is very straightforward in our text, but I don't think we fully understand what it means by sitting in the tax office. A tax collector, if you will. Now, it's tax season, right? Most of you have filed your taxes by now, unless you're like me and you're late. I got an extension, don't worry, everything's okay. They allow that. We don't like paying our taxes, do we? But we generally do pay our taxes. But our taxes are regulated differently than their taxes. You see, as a tax collector, there was a couple different kinds, and it's likely Matthew was the kind. He got to choose what was taxed and what wasn't taxed. So they would tax basically whatever they wanted, and they were known as being, uh, they, they were as, as on, the, on the Jewish totem pole, so to speak. They were down where unclean animals were. If you were a tax collector, you were a traitor. You were a Jew who had converted to being loyal to the Roman government. You had to pay a certain amount, but you got to keep everything extra that you collected. So there was incentive. The more you collected, the richer you became. So tax collectors were not very well liked. I can imagine Matthew walking out on the dock with Peter and John and their fishing boat pulling in and taxing them on their boat, taxing them per fish that they caught, taxing them on their nets that they may have been broken. They could tax on whatever they wanted however they wanted to, and they would have to tax. And if the people said, no, no, we're not going to pay that tax, they had the authority of the Roman government, the authority of the Roman army behind them. You would have had to pay the tax. So Matthew, needless to say, was not well liked. And I can imagine what the disciples thought as they're walking through. And he looks at Matthew. He says, Matthew, follow me. And No, not him, Lord. No, that's the, no, no, you don't understand who he is. He's been taxing us wrongly for years. No, we don't want him. And the Lord Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. And what does he do? He follows him. He gives up everything. He leaves the tax office, leaves his business, walks away from it. He follow me. It cost him something to follow the Lord. It cost him his business. It cost him everything that he had, all of his, his, his livelihood. Follow me. When Jesus said to you, follow me, were you willing? Or were you like the two guys that we studied earlier? that said, well, let me go take care of the things of the world first. Let me go finish this thing up first. Let me go, let me get married, get my career started, then I'll follow you. Let me, let me get a little more financially. You know, I'm not done living that party life yet. Not yet, Lord. I, I will. Matthew said, follow, Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And he went, follow me. It says very, very clearly, Matthew, he arose and he followed him. Now I need to share something with you. When it says that Matthew followed Jesus, who was the leader? Jesus was the leader, right? Sometimes we go to the Lord and we want to be the leader. All right, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Come, let me tell you what to do. I want you to fix this. I want you to do that. I want you to work here. And when you're done with that, then we'll worship together. That's not following Jesus. Following Jesus means, Lord, what do you want me to do? Or where are you going to take me? It means you're the, you know, you ever seen the old, the, the old bumper, the license plate, God is my co-pilot? No, that's wrong. God needs to be your pilot. You're the co-pilot. 
Let him be the one leading. Let him be the one taking you. Let him be the one that you're behind. You see, when you're leading, you're always looking to God saying, are you with me on this? When you walk behind him and you let him follow, he's looking at you going, come on. And it makes it a lot easier. Follow me. Matthew gets up. He rises. He follows him. Look at verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Most people believe that Matthew brought him home, brought Jesus home. Hey, Jesus, why don't you come back to my house? Okay, let's go. And what did he do? He invited all of his friends, all of his fellow tax collectors, all of, all of the unclean people. And here's Jesus sitting among the quote-unquote unclean people. He sat at the table in the house, many tax collectors and what? Sinners. He's hanging out among the sinners, the people who are perhaps addicted to drugs, the people who are maybe had a little bit too much to drink that afternoon, the people who are not looked upon favorably by the religious leaders, the people who are the outcasts of society, the sinners is who he's hanging out with. He needs to get them cleaned up. They're not respectable people. That's not what Jesus thought. Jesus knows where he's needed. He's going exactly where he's needed. He's with the sinners, the tax collectors. He sat down with him and his disciples. They're probably not too cool with this. They're probably like, wait, 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 Lord. You know, it was okay that you called Matthew. All right, he wasn't so bad. But these rest of these tax collectors, no, we don't want anything to do with them. Sometimes we're that way in church. Sometimes somebody in church can come in and, and they're like a tax collector. They're, they're don't, they don't fit to, they don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't smell like us. They don't behave like they're supposed to behave. Maybe they're bringing the weight of the world and the consequences of their sins with them. And what do we do? Well, you've got to dress a certain way. You've got to act a certain way. You're not, you're not welcome here. That's not where Jesus was. Jesus was with them. And I need to share something with you because sometimes people misunderstand this. They say all Christians need to be back out in the world. In other words, we should be in the bars and we should be in the parties and we should be all those places. Listen, I want you to understand something very, very carefully. Wherever Jesus went, he affected the place and the people for the Lord. If you going to a bar and you could affect everybody in there for God, then go. But if you're going to go to a bar that's going to affect you more for Satan or for evil things, then stay away from it. You know, when Jesus went into these places, when he was around these people, he was bringing them up. He wasn't partying with them. You see, there's a popular idea now that, you know, there's a lot of churches that are doing cool things like, you know, beer in the Bible and we're having drinks in the Bible. That's not what was going on here. He wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't approving of their lifestyle. He wasn't telling them what they were doing. He was teaching them the things of God and they were listening. If people don't want to listen, you don't need to be there. There's no reason for you to be there. He was affecting where he was for the kingdom. They weren't bringing him down. And too often we go, or I've seen Christians go into places where they think they're going to affect it for the kingdom. And you know what happens? They themselves get affected. <clears throat> happens in dating relationships. We like to call it missionary dating. You know, oh, I'll get him or her saved. I'll lead him to Christ. I'll, I'll get, let, let me just, let me spend, well, I'll bring him to church. And the dating happens. And almost every single time, you know what happens? The one who's a believer gets pulled away from the Lord. Slowly and slowly and slowly until all of a sudden, well, we're not, where have you been? We're not in church anymore. Well, yeah, I need to get back. And what they thought they were affecting the relationship for the Lord, it wasn't. It was affected them negatively. Wherever Jesus is among sinners, wherever he's among these kinds of people, he's affecting them for Christ in a positive way. He's not being drug in to what they're doing. 
So the Pharisees see what's going on. They take a look at it. They saw it and they said to, and they said to his disciples, notice they don't go to him. They don't go to him. They don't ask him about it. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, there was a belief in that culture that when you ate with somebody, you, shared, you, became, you, you supped with them, you became part of them. They, they, what part of them got on you, part of you got on them, and it was the way they ate. They would take a, a you know, if you, if you were eating meat or bread, you would dip it. There, double dipping was allowed. It was encouraged. You know, so when you would double dip and they would double dip, you were eating part of their germs and they had your germs. It was this big family thing. And it, Why would you do that with a sinner and a tax collector? Part of their uncleanness is now getting on you. You see the heart of the Pharisees. Why are you sitting with those people? You're making yourself unclean by sitting with those unclean people. No self-respecting man of God would ever do such a thing. That was the heart of the Pharisees. Notice the Pharisees are there now. They're watching him. They're observing him. What is he doing? Why is he with sinners and tax collectors? Notice they don't go to him personally. Who do they go to? The disciples. They go to the disciples. And verse 12, when Jesus heard, isn't he always listening? When he heard, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, I have something they need, and I'm going to be where there's a need. In other words, he's telling them, you as spiritual people need to go help those that aren't spiritual become spiritual, and you have something they need, but you won't go touch them. Can you imagine a doctor who was afraid to touch somebody? You go to the doctors, you're sick, you're not feeling well, maybe your glands are swollen, whatever it is, and you sit down to the doctor and you say, doc, my glands are swollen, can you tell, tell me what you think? No, no, I don't touch anybody. Well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm just going to run some blood tests. Well, but I have this pain over here. Can you, can you tell me if it's... No, no, I don't, I don't, I don't touch anybody. I, I, don't want to, I don't want your uncleanness. I'm afraid that I might get what you have. I mean, can you imagine if a doctor was that way? I mean, how many sick people doctors see all the time? And they can't be... Cons and, and sometimes they probably do get sick, but you can't be concerned with that. You have to, you have to still... If, if you want to be a doctor, you have to be around sick people. You can't go, I want to be a doctor, but I don't want to see any sick people. Well, you've got a job in research somewhere, I guess. But you're not going to help people. You're just going to be on the outside. You know, this is, this is what he's telling them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says there in verse 13, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When he quotes there from Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, in the book of Hosea, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The reading there from Hosea actually says, if you add to the rest of the verse, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. At the time Hosea is writing this to the nation of Israel, there was no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. There was no compassion, no mercy, no truth, 
or the knowledge of God in the land. And what, as Hosea is writing this, he's trying to tell them, you guys don't understand what's going on here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, you're making your burnt offerings, you're keeping your religious routine up, but you don't understand who God is. You don't understand the personality of God. You don't understand the characteristics of God. You're simply worshiping God based on a religious routine rather than who God really is. You see, they would have known this verse. They would have understood that as he's quoting this to them, where it came from. He says, go learn what this means. That's an insult to the Pharisees. He's insulting their intelligence. Go learn what this means. And he quotes back to them their very own scriptures from their very own prophets. I desire mercy. It means I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Your religious routines are great. But I want you to know who I am. I want you to know the characteristics of God. I want you to understand who I really am is what Jesus is saying. You don't understand who I am. You're so stuck in your religious routines. The way that you dress. The way that you talk to one another. You're so stuck in your religious laws, your Sabbath laws. You've become so ridiculous in them, you've missed who God is through it all. That's essentially what he's telling them. He says, for I did not come to call the righteous. In other words, how am I supposed to call the sinners if I'm not around the sinners? How am I supposed to be around? If, I, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm, not, I'm not here for the righteous, if you think you're righteous, that's your business. But could they really be righteous? Only in their own eyes. They really weren't righteous. You see, they had taken the law of God. They'd made it fit their lifestyle. So they felt in their mind their righteousness came through the law of God. But it really didn't. The law of God only showed them they really couldn't keep the law. But through the years of oral tradition, through the scribes, they were able to manipulate the law of God and say, I'm doing really good at keeping the law of God. And they would then compare themselves to the sinners and to the publicans or the tax collectors. Well, I am so much more righteous than they are. Because I keep the law of God better than they do. But that wasn't the point. If you failed in one part of the law, you failed in all parts of the law. You might be a better person than the person sitting next to you. But that's not going to get you to heaven. He's not the standard. She's not the standard. You can't go to the worst part of society and go, well, I'm better than they are. It doesn't work that way. The only way that you're going to get to heaven is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because you and I have our own sins that need to be covered. Regardless of what somebody else's sins that look like. My concern isn't that I'm better than somebody else. You know that's unique to Christianity? We're the only ones that say that your sins can be forgiven. No other religion says your sins can be forgiven. You can get to heaven or wherever you're trying to get to based on being a good person. You can do it that way or, or being better than, more good than bad or based on your works. But Christianity says, that's the gospel message. That's the beauty of it. Your sins are forgiven. What did he tell the man? Your sins are forgiven. How do you have the power to do that? Because I'm God on earth. I'm God in the flesh. I'm dwelling among you. That's how I have the power to do that. The beauty that we have as Christians is our, we can go to bed tonight and tomorrow night and next week and next month and know as long as I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, as long as I'm doing what Matthew did, I'm following. That meant I get up, I left my old life behind, I'm following Jesus, my sins are forgiven. Well, Rob, I blew it this week. It doesn't matter, your sins are forgiven. No, I really, really blew it. I didn't just say a bad word. I, I, I can't even tell you what I... No, no, your sins are forgiven. No, no I, thought, oh, I thought they were only forgiven up to this point. No, past, present, and future, your sins are forgiven. Matter of fact, the Lord says he chooses to remember them no more. How about that? The only one remembering your sins is you in that relationship. 
Think about that. Lord, I did this thing 25 years ago. He goes, what thing? Well, you know, that really bad, no, no, I don't know. I'm choosing not to remember that. Why do you keep bringing it up? You see how it works? He says your sins are, he has the ability to say your sins are forgiven. He's telling the Pharisees there, go find what this means. I desire mercy. I desire compassion on these people that you're accusing me of being with, these sinners and tax collectors, and not sacrifice. I don't want your religious system. Christianity is about the people. It's about the people's relationship with the Lord. It's about the gospel message which says we can be forgiven of sins. It's not about where we rank in society, and that's the point that he's making. It's not about that. He said, finally, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, sinners what? To repentance. I came to call sinners to repentance. Do we have any sinners out there? Nobody? Just me? No, I know, I know. Trust me, I know, believe me. I came to call, what did he do to Matthew? Called him, didn't he? Follow me. I came to call the sinners to repentance. There's a call on each of our lives to follow him. There's a call on each of our lives to repent. What if we have a bad week and we blow it? What do we do? Repent. It's that simple. Just repent and get back up and move on. But ask yourself this question. Am I really following Jesus? Am I really, is he really leading my life? Is he the one that's directing or am I trying to bring him along and put him in my co-pilot position? And I, I want Jesus as long as he'll give me what I want. As long as he'll make my life comfortable. As long as he'll take away this illness. As long as he'll find me a husband or a wife or maybe as long as he'll I, had a ter- I, th- I thought I'd get rid of my husband or wife, but that's a terrible thought to have up here as a pastor. But you could make this kind of mindset. I want him to do whatever I want him to do. That's not the heart that he's looking for. He wants a heart of repentance. He wants, a, a, he, he wants mercy. He wants compassion. He wants a heart of humility. He wants a heart that says, you know what, Lord, I'll follow you. And I'm going to trust in your word that says that when I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. And if you've fallen and if you need to ask for forgiveness what does he say repent just simply repent and that's so easy it's a matter of humility we say lord forgive me for my sins forgive me i want to follow you this day and i can I, there's no doubt that in my mind he's called every one of you to follow him it's just the question are we doing it matthew got up and he said goodbye to his wealth his career and his life the way he knew it and he gave it all up to follow jesus all of it would you do the same thing? As he says, follow me. Are you willing to take a step of faith in what he leads you to? Are you willing to go forward and say, Lord, I'll do that. I'll follow you in that endeavor. You see, when you take the step of faith and it brings you to a place that you didn't think you could do or the thing that you couldn't handle and you do it, it he gets all the glory because you're beyond your own ability. You, you go beyond. You, I've, I can't do this, Lord. He says, yes, you can. You, Lord, I can't do it. Yes, you can. Let me help you. I'll do it through you. You just glorify me for it. Don't make the mistake of letting him do it through you and then not glorifying him. That's not what he wants. You see, that's been the blessing of this church. He gets all the glory for everything that we've accomplished here. It's not me. And I've said it publicly, I don't know how many times. As we've grown, as we've done radio stations, as ministries are happening, as our broken chains, discipleship stuff is getting off the grounds. It's not Jordan. It's not me. It's all him. All him. We are, when, we, when we started our radio station, we were so far out of our comfort zone, we had no idea what radio even was. or how to, Other than turn one on, I knew nothing about it. 
and neither did Kevin. But we trusted the Lord, and he was faithful. And we're in the same boat right now with the broken chains ministry. We're looking at it going, all right, what do we do? And we're just seeking the Lord, saying, Lord, help us. And when it finally gets up and it finally gets running and there's lives being changed and people are coming and giving testimonies, it's not me, it's not Jordan, it's the Lord did it. It's just two people willing to say, all right, we're going to go outside of our comfort zone and let you lead us on this situation, Lord. Because we don't know where the money's going to come from. We don't know where the house is going to come from. We don't know any of that stuff. But we're willing to say, yeah, we'll do it. That's what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. All right, let's quit there. Next week, we'll talk about fasting. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, as you made that last statement, you reminded the Pharisees of the scripture, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Lord, may that ring true in our heart. May we evaluate ourselves. Are we compassionate? Are we merciful to those around us? Are we simply looking to meet with you in a religious system? Lord, if we are only meeting with you through routine or religion, Lord, would you convict us of that? Would there be a burning in our heart to, would our faith drive us to performance, to drive us to be closer to you? Lord, would you forgive us for our sins? Would you heal us of the consequences of the things of our past sins? May we be a group of people who walk faithfully with you, pointing to you for the glory, watching what you'll do in each of our lives as we step out and start a Bible study, or we step out, start a ministry. Lord, may we be people who are led by you and you alone. Lord, if the world has crept in, would you reveal it to us? Would we repent? We wash ourselves clean. Would you wash us clean in your blood? In Jesus' name, amen.